You're listening to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast on the Medics Academy Network. Welcome back to the podcast with myself, Owen Walker. In this episode, we're going to look at point of care ultrasound as a predictor of traumatic cardiac arrest outcome with Professor Tim Harris. So what I wanted to do in the conversation is examine whether point of care ultrasound is a reliable predictor of outcome during traumatic cardiac arrest. So we're going to dig into some of the recently published systematic review on the topic with Tim Harris, who is one of the authors of the paper. So we're going to examine why the authors decided to look at TCA uh, in point of care ultrasound. We're going to look at the number of studies and patients aggregated and examined in the study. We'll look at the type of mechanism of injury leading to traumatic cardiac arrest. We're going to look at what the results showed and how this is relevant to practice. So we're also going to look at some other adjunctive markers in the pre-hospital domain to inform the termination of resuscitation based on the results found in this paper. Also going to dig into another recently published paper regarding uh, and related to the diagnostic performance of POCUS in resuscitative outcomes published in April of this year on a systematic review and meta-analysis of 3,265 patients and outcomes within POCUS. So today I have Tim Harris with me. Tim is a professor of emergency medicine and program director of the emergency and resuscitation medicine program at the Blizzard Institute, Queen Mary's University of London. He's trained extensively overseas training in emergency medicine and intensive care in Australia, Africa, India and Samoa. Tim, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. And the UK, of course. For some and time. indeed the UK. And indeed the UK. Tim, thank Tim. you very much for having me on. And um, it's a pleasure to see you again. It's a, it's a pleasure to have you with us, actually, Tim. And it's really pertinent to uh, to examine this topic because it's extremely prevalent uh, and has made itself even more so in the past few years within critical care. So it's a, it's a, it's a pleasure to uh, to have you on regarding this subject. And I just wondered if we could first start, Tim, with just why it was important to examine point of care ultrasound as a sole predictor of outcome in traumatic cardiac arrest. So first of all, I'd just like to acknowledge my co-authors on the paper. I wasn't the first author. And uh, Elizabeth Alonde, Paul and a group mainly based in Canada, and my colleague um, Stephen Thomas, who's Professor of Emergency Medicine in Harvard, who helped us with the statistics. So very much a group effort of which I was very much a minor player. And I'm very grateful to my co-authors for inviting me in. So you, you asked, why is it important to look at POCUS as an adjunct to the management of traumatic cardiac arrest? One, POCUS is an exponentially growing diagnostic tool. We've seen it emerge from a few fast adapters, maybe 20, 25 years ago, um, into a mainstream diagnostic tool. And one of the problems when you adapt a new tool into medicine is you have to define its role. And we often see people using POCUS in traumatic and medical cardiac arrests for a diagnostic tool and also a prognostic tool. So number one, it's important to look at this because people are using it to prognosticate and therefore we need to understand exactly how it should be used to prognosticate. Number two, um, there have been a number of small publications which mean we could do a meta-analysis to see if these small papers give us enough of a signal upon which to base decision. So just looking at the difference in survival figures from TCA compared to to a traumatic cardiac arrest. How important is it to differentiate and indeed silo 
um, TCA from an atraumatic cardiac arrest when you're looking at POCUS? Yeah, that's a great question, isn't it? And when I started pre-hospital work with um, Sydney and London HEM systems, we managed traumatic and medical cardiac arrest along standard ALS guidelines. So we prioritised clearing the airway, getting oxygen, early CPR, and identifying patients for early defibrillation. Now, if you follow the guidelines through to the latest iterations, we now understand that traumatic cardiac arrest is a completely different disease. In medical cardiac arrest, we have usually a sick heart, not always, of course, it may be a relatively well heart with a large obstructive pulmonary embolism, but the vast majority cardiac and the heart sick. In trauma, the vast majority are perfectly well hearts that just want to beat but can't beat because of something. Most commonly, they can't beat because they're underfilled and it's a hypovolemic arrest. But more rarely, it's due to tension physiology, be that from pericardial effusion from tamponade or from tension pneumothorax. And of course, there are rarer causes too, but those are the majority. So you've got two completely different diseases. So if somebody is, say, in a systole, from a traumatic cardiac arrest that suggests that the heart must have had an overwhelming insult usually hypoxic because it just can't beat and the whole thing will be damaged in most medical cardiac arrest where you've got an acute ischemic event you've either got an arrhythmia or a loss of myocardium to the point so you've got sick hearts some of which may want to beat so just before we look at the key takeaways from the paper, could you maybe speak to the numbers of, of, of papers that you aggregated and indeed patients that met the inclusion criteria? Yeah, so if we look at the um, meta-analysis that uh, Elizabeth led, uh, we had a total of eight papers. Some of those papers looked at just blunt trauma. Some of them looked at just penetrating trauma. And just under half looked at both medical and traumatic cardiac arrest. So the authors needed to contact the authors of those papers and go through the data and extract those that were from traumatic arrest alone. So it was a very carefully conducted analysis where we teased out all of the patients in traumatic cardiac arrest from mixed papers and those alone. Nonetheless, it is a heterogeneous group, including blunt and penetrating disease. So that's a really interesting point, Tim, and one that that you approach within the paper. And I, I think one of the um, aspects of the paper which is mentioned is is that the mechanism of injury was was uh, there's a heterogeneity of of mechanism. Um, how did the study account for this heterogeneity? Well, it, it didn't really. Um, the meta analysis um, was still small numbers i mean we're, we're looking at uh, you know three and a half hundred patients so you reach a point when subgroup analysis leaves you with groups that are so small it's not really worth looking at um now you mentioned heterogeneity so we can measure heterogeneity with a, a statistical tool called the i squared heterogeneity in a meta-analysis is really telling you what were the difference in the findings of each study included as compared to the mean of those studies? So if you've got some studies that show a positive effect and others that show a negative effect, you've got 
heterogeneity, a mixture of results. If all studies show approximately the same finding, then you've got very low heterogeneity. The more heterogeneity you've got, the harder it is to mix studies. And I could see this as fruit. If, if you want to make an apple smoothie, you just include apples. If you include apples, pears and bananas, you've got to mix fruit smoothie and it doesn't taste any. It probably tastes better, but it doesn't taste of apples. So the, the problem is that within this uh, meta-analysis of traumatic cardiac arrest, we did have heterogeneity and our, our I-squared number was over 50. And purists could argue we perhaps shouldn't have done a meta-analysis because of that heterogeneity. Um, certainly I've done another systematic review looking at cardiac arrests overall and we pulled out patients with traumatic cardiac arrest and in that case we didn't do a meta-analysis we just did a systematic review because we're concerned about the heterogeneity the problem with doing a meta-analysis where you've got considerable heterogeneity is it gives you a pooled average of studies that may be opposing and it's very hard to look at that and take a consistent message it just tells you on average what you found um lots of things go into heterogeneity maybe different age groups maybe different uh thoughts of trauma if you're stabbed in the heart you're going to do better so if you have a group of patients that are stabbed in the heart with a small knife with a high incidence of um, hemopericardium and tamponade that's going to give you a very different set of outcomes from gunshots to the chest or blunt trauma if you have a hems team that arrive within minutes and can start resuscitation with blood products with advanced airway techniques and offer advanced surgical techniques such as thoracotomy thoracostomy that's going to give you a very different set of survivals from if you have um, a team without skilled paramedics and doctors and maybe a remote location and an average time to scene of an hour so i mean we could talk about this a long time and i'll, I'll stop but it's very important when you read any meta-analysis to understand the populations that have been studied the skills that have been assessed and the ability of the crews to undertake those skills really interesting actually tim because like you said you speak to the prognostic um ability or capability of a tool versus the diagnostic capability and 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 as you said the the sequelae and the actual disease pathology itself around traumatic arrest is quite unique as the fact you see the air or its blood um in in certain areas and the reversal of such is um it, it can be picked up in, in in a very much a different way to 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 medical pathology could you maybe speak to the take-home messages for the paper what 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 you deduced from the meta-analysis and from these uh, 710 patients so the take-home message is we need more studies we need more research so you said the 710 patients but you know under half of those really went into the overall meta-analysis um you you can't always take data from a paper and put it in a meta-analysis so take home message really is that we need to research this far, far more to understand the position of ultrasound in prognostication in cardiac arrest in the setting of trauma. That said, um, every patient that had asystole and no pericardial effusion died. So there is one strong signal from this paper which suggests if you put the probe on somebody in a traumatic cardiac arrest, and the heart is not beating, and there's no fluid around the heart, all of those patients in this group died. 
Um, now, they one of them did actually get Ross, but subsequently died in hospital. And I think that's the second point I do want to make is many studies of cardiac arrest look at the end point of ROS. What we really need to be looking at is the end point of CPC survival at 90 days or even longer. The, the end point of our resuscitation is not to get ROSC. The end point of our resuscitation is to turn a human being back into a meaningful survived life. And the problem with this and most studies is they're simply underpowered. I mean, the survival of medical cardiac arrest around 10%, traumatic cardiac arrest varies hugely from, say, a penetrating disease population from knife wounds with a tamponade, where it may be you know, as high as 50%, through to a blunt traumatic arrest with a transected aorta where survival is going to be zero, even in the best of hands. I want to do, I fundamentally agree with you on, on those points. And I think, like you said, meaningful outcomes, um, where there's, there's some semblance of cognitive return of, of, of function, um, is, is, is absolutely key. And, uh, to, to your point, there's, there's also, as the tool evolves, um, it's prudent to, like you said, to, to look at further studies as to its adjunctive use in prognostication so just to that point there there is a few of the studies that there's been a lot of work in this area and i'll get you to speak to uh, a meta-analysis that you're doing uh currently uh, and just maybe speak to the overview but if we could just look for a second at a couple of other studies actually also one in particular that came out in april of this year around the diagnostic performance of point of use ultrasound and resuscitative outcomes so it was a, a systematic review and meta-analysis of 3,265 patients by uh, Dudkett uh, et al. I'll put the I'll put the paper we've just talked about in the show notes. I'll put this paper in the show notes as well. But I just like to. There is a lot of work in this domain, Tim. If we could just maybe speak to or get you to speak to, um, just whether just the results of the study and indeed. It was it was a, a large disparate cohort of patients, so there was a lot of heterogeneity in this in this study. They they looked at both traumatic and medical uh, cardiac arrests. They aggregated the the, the results. Um, I guess my question is, can you do that? Can you do that and get a meaningful outcome or representation of whether this is truly an effective prognosticator? Yeah, I mean, thank you, and you you've raised a number of really interesting and really good points so this is a systematic review and a meta-analysis that looks at um cardiac arrest and i'm going to just put a full stop there because it just looks at cardiac arrest and they included pre-hospital and in-hospital although i'm not quite clear what they defined as in hospital some studies define in hospital as a ward-based cardiac arrest others as a arrest occurring in the emergency department and in the wards and that that really matters because a cardiac arrest on a medical ward has a very different prognosis and set of causes from one occurring pre-hospital and of course most of the cardiac arrests that we care for in ED are continuations of pre-hospital resuscitation. Um, the paper also um, included studies from a vast array of countries and of course you've got to do that in a meta-analysis but the important point there is the denominator in some countries such as japan all patients are transported to hospital to be declared dead and in others such as the us and the uk the paramedics will terminate most cardiac arrests pre-hospital um, and transport 
the minority, perhaps you know, as, as few as 20 to 40 percent. So the denominators vary hugely of what reaches the ED. You've then got variation in who's doing the ultrasound. It might be you've got somebody with minimal training that's doing five ultrasounds a year. In another system, you might have a dedicated you know, paramedic or doctor that only deals with cardiac arrest that's doing ultrasound and cardiac arrest every day. So you've got skills that vary. You've got patient populations that vary. Um, you've also got variance in the timing of when you do the ultrasound. Because if you do an ultrasound two minutes into a cardiac arrest or 20 minutes into a cardiac arrest, you're going to get very different findings. We know that most medical cardiac arrests will start with either VTVF or less commonly PEA, but then will degenerate so that by around eight minutes, the average time a first responder arrives at a cardiac arrest, you're going to see around a quarter that are in VTVF, around a quarter to a third that are in a PA, and the remainder is in asystole. But the longer the time from arrest to arrival, the higher the proportion that will be in asystole. So you've got huge variation. And the paper didn't really do any subgroup analyses. Now, that's probably not what the authors wanted to do. They probably well, they obviously did want to just look at ultrasound and all cardiac arrests. That the problem is generalizing that average finding to your population and your skill set. And I don't think you can do that. I would have been much happier if the authors had perhaps done their meta-analysis, but a priori defined subgroups such as this is what happens if you do the ultrasound pre-hospital this is what happens if you do it in the ed and this is what happens in the ward and then i also think the authors that research this should define what they mean by cardiac activity does it mean a little flicker of a heart see to me when i'm looking for cardiac activity i want enough contraction of the left ventricle to open the aortic valve and eject blood and that to me is meaningful cardiac activity. Now, many people may disagree and I absolutely respect their opinions. But the problem is when you look at the papers that explore the role of POCUS in cardiac arrest, there is no universal definition of what movement is. And then you've got the last point, which is the people doing the ultrasound are reporting that to the team leader who will make a decision. So you're studying a test in this case pocus and you're looking at the pocus ability to predict survival but if the team leader knows the pocus results and has opinion on whether those pocus results should impact his or her decision making then the intervention under study is affecting the outcome under study which of course is huge bias and that's really as i understand it why the resuscitation council position has shifted and down-regulated the importance of um, ultrasound because there is an inbuilt bias in all studies and very few have looked at it. I can talk about the ones that have looked at it if you wish, but I'll bounce back to you and see where you'd like to take the interview. Yeah, indeed, indeed. It's fascinating, Tim. And as as you said, um, not only just within cardiac arrest, I think we've seen a, a de-emphasis and a down-regulation of, of ultrasound within 
PE management actually and just looking at management of, of, of PE just to be more of an adjunctive tool rather than a sole uh, predictor of either outcome or, or diagnosis and so I think across pathologies there has been a there's been a de-emphasis because like you said the, the data isn't there and indeed the it doesn't seem to be uh, a tool which, because of the heterogeneity, the, the, it, it's it's hard to build algorithms ag- or prognostic tools that that in, encompass every type of pathology for, for 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 which it's used. Could you maybe speak to so where I'll go with the conversation now? I'd I'd like to look at what the study reinforces and what, what we can take away from that just for future research, but. Before I do that, can we just look at the adjunctive use of ultrasound? Because very much within my practice, I would use the um, entitled carbon dioxide levels with the ECG, with the uh, with the point of care ultrasound. I triangulate, then you'd use the retrospective history. You'd use the uh, whether the patient had had CPR, and this is all in the pre-hospital domain. We didn't have access to uh, um, to uh, pH uh, or, or blood work, but what we would do is we'd very much triangulate those three progno- uh, diagnostic indicators to to then prognosticate uh together with some uh, bilateral history could could you maybe speak to how you see it at, at the moment both maybe within traumatic cardiac arrest but also very much as an adjunctive tool for all cardiac arrest there's a lot to cover there so you, you you've suggested a really well-made point that the more factors that are considered in making any medical decision provided you have good data on those factors and you know how each of those factors impacts prognosis the better your decision making will be and we see this in all decision rules you know whether it's the ottawa ankle criteria or the wells criteria for venous thromboembolism all of these perform well and they're great mathematical models but if a clinician uses 10 or 20 data points cleverly they're likely to make a better decision than a rule that's based on three, four or five decision points. I'm absolutely in favour of rules. I'm absolutely in favour of guidelines. By rules, I mean clinical decision rules, but they're an adjuvant. They don't replace good clinical judgment. They just help us improve our clinical judgment. Ultrasound is a single factor. It's very unlikely that a single factor will enable decision making. It's appealing to say if x equals y then something will happen but usually it's a b c d e f g all together will give us why why being our decision so ultrasound is not going to be a single arbiter of outcome in cardiac arrest and the authors of this paper conclude that just as the authors of every single paper that's looked at this, or sorry, every single meta-analysis concludes that the absence of cardiac activity is not sufficient to terminate a cardiac arrest. And I think that's the key important take-home message. However, if the heart is beating on ultrasound in any sort of cardiac arrest, then the odds of survival are much greater. So seeing a beating heart in the setting of an arrest, indicating a PEA arrest, shows you've got a better prognosis seeing a heart that's not moving 
indicates a poor prognosis. But that's just common sense, isn't it? It's lovely to have common sense backed up by a bit of stats sometimes, and it certainly helps when you're explaining to the relatives or standing in court. Uh, but that's the key take-home message. Now, again, I, I've talked for too long. You did cover some other points in your questions, and please direct me back if you want to pick up on some of those. No, it's fantastic. And I, I think you've landed those points fantastically, actually, Tim. Um, just just actually the one of the questions I, I did have was, and this leads me quite nicely on to some, some of the work you are doing currently, and maybe you could speak to it just in an, in an overview. But my question was around what this study sort of reinforces in your mind about how we direct and look at um, point of care ultrasound as a, as a prognostic tool. And if you could maybe use that as a segue to, to look at what you're studying uh, currently. So with ultrasound, um, I'm, I'm going to just focus on the meta-analyses, I think, rather than look at everything else, because we're going to go off into diagnostics and that's not the focus of this um, podcast. Uh, so some of my colleagues in Qatar, where I was recently based, uh, chap called Omar and Bilal and Mahmood, so it's three chaps actually, um, wanted to do a systematic review and meta-analysis of ultrasound as a tool in cardiac arrest. Now, their paper's under review at the moment, um, but sh should be out shortly. But the, the take-home findings of this paper were in any group, pre-hospital, in ED, trauma or medical, ultrasound alone does not allow you to make a decision so just to reinforce the points a system ultrasound is, is not a definite cause of uh, a definite reason to cease resuscitation the strongest signal by far is in traumatic cardiac arrest and it may be with more data that if we see a non-beating heart in the absence of effusion that is um, sufficient for us to terminate resuscitation efforts in a traumatic cardiac arrest but of course we would always be taking the context of the patient you know if you've got a profoundly hypothermic patient where you're unsure if the trauma you know they fell into a river and you don't know what the degree of trauma is you, you're still going to rewarm them so again anything i say here must be taken in in the correct clinical context um the other paper that i think is of of interest and is semi-related to this is a systematic review and meta-analysis that we did the same author group but in, with uh, Bob Jarman who's a, a professor of um, point of care imaging in the north of England and we looked at the question can emergency physicians predict cardiac performance by cardiac performance i mean a measure of how well the left ventricle beats and we know that this is very important in looking for the cause of breathlessness we know it's important in uh, looking at the prognosis of a number of diseases basically the worse your heart beats the worse you do in just about everything you look at and the take-home message was emergency physicians and cardiologists have a very high level of agreement in assessing the heart as whether it's hyperdynamic, so ejecting more than 70%, normal, ejecting 55 to 70% of the left ventricular volume, or is mildly reduced, sorry, is moderately reduced or severely reduced. So the take-home message there is emergency physicians um, are able to assess left ventricular performance qualitatively um, and the agreement between emergency physicians and cardiologists is um, sufficiently high for that to be used in a clinical arena. 
Absolutely. Uh, to your point around just generating this basis of, of research whereby there is high levels of agreement. And would that be somewhere where you see pre-hospital literature um, sort of evolving to where by there is comparative studies so that there's uh, a, a consensus and or indeed a evidence base to say that there's there's an accurate reporting from a cohort of critical care paramedics um, in comparison to a, an expert provider? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've quoted emergency physicians because that was the group where we had sufficient data to study. I mean, I run a master's. The master's welcomes paramedics, doctors and nurses equally. You know, if you take somebody with a good healthcare training and give them a new skill, their ability to do the new skill is a product of their training and how often they use their skill. It doesn't really matter if they're a nurse, a paramedic or a doctor. You know, if, if you and I go and train the biker groups in central London in ultrasound in the pre-hospital setting, they'll do just as well as if we took a group of doctors or nurses. So none of this is meant to be um, spe specialty group specific. However, you've asked me about specific papers and I can only quote the data in the papers and it's important when you read a paper to know who performed that particular test whether it's an intubation or a costume ultrasound putting a drip in or whatever um i do think we need a lot more research pre-hospital and i think one of the best things to come out of doctors and paramedics working together is the rapid growth of research in the pre-hospital environment and i think if we look across at um, you know groups be it london hems the counties um, organizations you know aaa kss uh, we, we look at the german groups where you are the french groups the australian and the american the amount of high quality pre-hospital research is blossoming and we've also had some absolutely fantastic papers predominantly out of the uk and the us um, looking at interventions you know the airway work the adrenaline work by uh, gavin perkins in warwick um to, to name but a few so i think we're seeing much higher quality research in the pre-hospital environment i think this is absolutely fantastic for our patients uh, and for those of us that work in the specialty because it allows us to have the evidence to make good decisions for our patients Tim, listen thank you for your time today i really do uh value it and it's been extremely form informative just speaking with you and just just looking at where the literature is where it's going and indeed um just some of the other studies in the in the domain i think what we'll do is we'll put um links to 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 your paper um in the show notes we'll put links to the paper we've just discussed in the in the show notes and any other useful information as well but i just want to thank you for your time today tim and indeed your perspectives thank you um it's an absolute honour to be invited onto your show and I'm humbled and I thank you and good luck in your new, well, not so new job, but good, good luck with your job and the best of luck for this uh, site. You're listening to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast on the Medics Academy Network.